0: Hello, everyone. I'm Frank Garsworth with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today's topic is Lean Startup in Education, and moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty lead, Marilyn Gorman. Our guest is founder and CEO of 4.0 Schools, Matt Candler. In Marilyn and Matt's conversation, they discuss how early assumptions about what your customers want can hurt your credibility and waste time why it's important to know the problem you're trying to solve and then having the courage to experiment in a small way, the importance of building something for a customer segment rather than a one-size-fits-all product for everyone, and much, much more. So with that, I'll hand things off to Marilyn.
1: Well, it is so great to have an opportunity to speak with you today, Matt Candler. Thank you so much for making time to join me on this webcast.
0: You bet, Marilyn. And,
1: it's a joy. Oh, Fantastic. And you know, 4.0 schools is such an interesting and innovative opportunity. It's for educators and entrepreneurs really to work together. Matt, can you talk a little bit about it? Because I'm sure many people are not so familiar with 4.0 schools. And tell us how you came up with the idea. What was the reason that you wanted to focus on the future of schools?
0: Sure. Well, thanks, Marilyn. It's fun to talk with you. I think. Many of the concepts that, that anime 4.0 come from from lean and, and the conversations that we all are a part of so unfortunately the story is not very sexy. when we started this organization it was not very um, world changing it, it was in its first iteration a very simple mechanism for people to launch new Charter public schools in the southeast. So it was a year-long fellowship, including a lot of coaching, the equivalent of a hundred and fifty thousand dollar to two hundred thousand dollar investment in an aspiring educational entrepreneur who wanted to launch their own school. And that's what our first cohort consisted of: six uh, very amazing people who said, "I think that's what I want to do." One or two of those folks were like, "Maybe a school, maybe not," but we were like, "Okay, well, just go with us." and a school will be a great thing for you to do. Um, meanwhile, one of my colleagues, two of my colleagues said, could we run a little experiment on the side?" So this is the second year of our of our life as an organization. There are a lot of teachers here in New Orleans where we are based who want to try something new, but it's not a school. So could we give them a little help? And I was like, sure, you know, let's spend a little bit of our time, see what you find out. And, you know, sure enough, what came very clear within about a year of, of working with this much more diverse set of ideas and folks that didn't necessarily identify as entrepreneurs ready to quit their jobs sure. um, was they needed something very different from us, they needed something different than the 20 years of experience I had as a school builder. And so we we hit this crossroads Maryland second year of our organization and we said we either continue to, to serve folks as a school incubator, mm-hmm. or we pause that work and we listen to this new customer base who said, we need something special and different. Mm-hmm. And ever since that moment, and the phone call to funders to say what we raise money for is not what we want to do now, all the chaos and, and pain of that pivot um, has led to an unbelievably rich relationship with a community of entrepreneurs who come to 4.0 for something i'll describe in a very simple metaphor so i like food metaphors the way to think about how 4.0 has evolved in those eight years is we are now the place for an aspiring entrepreneur who wants to make school better to come and receive the equivalent of all the coaching and investment that a chef would get if they were going to do a food truck version of their restaurant, and so that was a long-winded way to get to that metaphor. Um, but you know, that's there is such a lack of understanding and commitment to meeting people who have ideas about the future of school um, that we found this huge gap in the sequence of engaging people with ideas um, mm-hmm. that we felt the need to fill that gap, and so and so what we provide to people thinking about changing school is a safe place to start that idea and get it out of your head and in front of students and families in your hometown. And it comes with all the coaching, all the investment and all the feedback that you need to get started.
1: Yeah. And, and it, it sounds like as well, and I know we talked at a, on a, a different call about this idea that you provide coaching capital, credibility and i know Mm -hmm. i'm not doing this in order but i love Mm -hmm. that one of them is community so that you're providing a chance for people to work with like-minded people
0: and you know i don't know how many of your viewers have been in the classroom but they probably all know someone who has Mm -hmm. and you know i spent I, i i do think that one thing we are really good at in education in this country is isolating those professionals from one another. It is arguably the most isolated and isolating of our caring professions, I would argue, and of all professions potentially. And so what you what you feel as a, my inner teacher knows what that isolation feels like, right? I mean, even physically, we are separated from one another as professionals and adults into rooms full of children. And so if there's one thing that we have, we have stuck to as the thing we must always prioritize it is being hospitable that is our number one value the first value on the list is hospitality and and we just feel that that is what's been missing from the profession and from the experience that students and families have in most schools in our country Mm -hmm. the idea of serving you as a customer and and acting as if we don't do our best you might go somewhere else that's just not part of the experience so i think that concept of community first Mm -hmm. and relying on that human interaction to define everything we do has become the most important part of what we do
1: oh i can imagine and as a former teacher myself too i i recognize exactly what you're talking about i know that Whether it's intuitive or whether it's learned, you are taking an experimental approach and I'm sure you know enough, if not a lot about lean startup, which is foundational to kind of a build, measure, learn approach. Can you talk about the kind of how you bring experimentation into what you're doing and what your fellowships are helping people to do?
0: Absolutely. And I I really, you know, we stole everything we can (laughs) from everyone who wrote anything on the topic, from, you know, from Steve Blank to to the folks who continue to define the movement today. And we actually work closely with uh, IDEO and the D School at Stanford. I know them well. Yeah. And and they've been so generous too, right? So that's another thing that I took away from, from that community. The folks who are defining what lean is and what human-centric design are, are just more generous um, and communal than we tend to be in in teaching, which is tragic and ironic. Um, One thing that I would say, Marilyn, I think that's really important is the the concept of testing when it comes to tooling um, and all of the very structural elements of race and class and poverty and wealth. Mm -hmm. that define how schooling is delivered and experienced in our country, we often talk about the challenge of that simple word, to test. And so one of the things we do in our programming is when you come to camp, all of our fellowships begin with a camp experience of three days in New Orleans, and the first day we talk about what ethical and humanizing testing looks like. And we talk about the the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and we talk about other experiments that were done in the name of science, but done at great harm and without any concern for the people being tested upon. And so there's a fundamental lens through which we look at this in Maryland, and that is that we test with and not on communities. And it's this, and again, this is core to lean. It is to cherish those first users that are willing to work with you when your product's still crappy and still very much in flux, mm-hmm. you know, treating them like gold and saying the fact that you would work with me while I'm still working this out, uh, is something I should cherish. Mm-hmm. And that has really been one of the most powerful concepts of lean that we have taken away, which is, is that element, uh, yeah. If I, even thinking about the Agile Manifesto, right? Like the, the, the premise of the customer and the human mm-hmm. and not the technology um, exactly. that remains really fundamental to what we do.
1: Yeah. You know, there's, I don't know how much you know about the six word project, uh, um, but there's a great, uh, it's a, it's just a way of only using six words to come up with uh, really the essence of what you're thinking about. Yeah. It's based on a story about Ernest Hemingway who, once came up was asked to write the world's shortest story and he came up with six words and it was for sale baby shoes never worn wow but there's a there's a a a six word story that i once read that i love and it's must remember people first then technology so true and i think that often gets lost in and when i listen to you matt as well it also reminds me of conversations because I obviously work much more with enterprise and with the government and we're often hearing as a potential objection, oh, customers don't want to be part of experiments or tests. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. And yet the reality is when we challenge that assumption, our customers, and it sounds like whether the customers are students, parents, community, and, or whether they're commercial customers, they really value being brought into the process. Absolutely. They value being treated as partners, not it's somebody so- having something done to.
0: Yeah. You know, absolutely, man. I I'm, I'm hesitating to not draw on the wall too much, but <laughs> my last day in our lab, we've been here for seven years. I got to write on the wall one more time. You know, we you. we we think a lot about this very simple graph, and you know, this is Chris Anderson's long tail theory, right? And, you know, been, yeah. mm-hmm. very construct but you know if you think about Hollywood as home to the blockbuster Mm -hmm. that represents the short tail it's the most you know uh, average product that most people will see you know this is where we see YouTube right and so many other platforms that illustrate what you're describing which is my experience as a subscriber to my YouTube channels is everything about being in the experiment with those creators as they grow their craft as content creators. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a fundamentally different experience for me as a film watcher, a content consumer, as was, is my relationship with Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And it's this, the the way I distinguish this, and, and I can't underestimate how profound, this old way of institutional power and concentration permeates everything in our work. Mm-hmm. This idea of scale being vertical, right? The the scale of a successful blockbuster is how vertical it gets in the number of viewers in that one movie. Mm-hmm. And the scale of Chris Anderson's theory of the long tail is that scale comes as a function of this x-axis. Mm-hmm. And yes, the 10 YouTube channels that I watch are not Hollywood blockbusters, but the cost of me adding a as becoming a subscriber or someone else adding a channel is so low that that, that long tail, the area under that curve is bigger than of the course. area under this curve, yeah. right? And, and, and whether it's philanthropy, or as you know, government in, engagement in schooling, it is very, very difficult to break free from this left side of the graph thinking because many people think and it's all well-intentioned but we think well we need what will work for all children yes yeah there's no such thing as an average child Mm -hmm. and so when we think about teaching individual human beings as they grow there's there's more promise in thinking about scale going that way because individualization and choice and personalization and scale on a human-to-human, creator-to-consumer re- relationship. And the, even the simple concept of YouTube and, and, and comments and that feedback loop informing, right, that is a much leaner approach yeah. to filmmaking yes. than Hollywood sort of waterfall approach, if we're going to kind of go there. And I got to tell you, that was new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, when we started 4.0. And so really embracing that concept of of lean uh, has changed everything we do. Sure,
1: well, and and it it makes perfect sense because first of all, you're reducing the risk.
0: That's right. You're
1: not trying to build, I don't know if this is the right metaphor for the Hollywood approach, but you're not building a whole new school system. You're building something that is much more individualized, much more adaptable and much easier to shift to change if you need to, based on what you learn. And so, which, yeah,
0: which becomes a more humanizing approach. Of course, of course. That's exactly yeah. what you
1: mean. So, so tell me a little bit about some of those early experiments, or I, I hesitate to use the word test anymore. It's okay, I um, know, we them. <laughs> but, but what we did you learn?
0: integrity. Yeah. So we are testing, but yeah. we're testing together, not on you. At of least course, yeah. Trying to do.
1: So, so what were some of the early experiments or tests that you ran and, and what, what were the failures that helped you to actually develop even greater learning? I know our listeners are always curious to hear about failures.
0: Well, I mean, you know, it, it was a scary month when after calling our first funder to say we wanted to pivot to do earlier stage yeah. investing, not uh, larger scale sort of Hollywood style investing, you know, even as a nonprofit, we got down to a month of cash and those are scary days. Sure. Um, and that funder and some others eventually came back around and, and really embraced what we're doing. But, you know, pot, this is what's fun. Again, I'll go back to that metaphor of the food truck. You know, let's say historically, um, you know, a restaurant costs a million to $10 million. It's a six, seven figure investment. Mm -hmm. A food truck in New Orleans, you can buy one for four figures, five grand, maybe Mm ten. But then if you go a whole other order of magnitude, simpler and faster, there's the pop-up dinner. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you've seen this, the food scene in New Orleans dramatically diversify and start to breathe Mm -hmm. away from simply Cajun and Creole food in the last ten years because of these two technologies, the food truck and the pop-up dinner. And so I'll give you a great story of Electric Girls, which is um, an organization run by a woman named Floor Sarna, who I met at a maker uh, fair here in New Orleans four years ago, five years ago. And um, Floor runs a series of summer, afternoon, and um, and in-school experiences for young women to build their confidence in STEAM and engineering. Mm-hmm. And you know, Floor's pop-up, we use her pop-up as an example of what a great experiment looks like. She brings, uh, she brought a small group of 10 or so young um, pre adolescent girls about from ages 6 to 12 together and said, today I'm going to teach you how to use wire cutters. And so you're going to learn this one skill, this tool, mm-hmm. I'll show you what this is, and right now, you don't know what this is or how to use it, but in an hour, you're gonna know how to use this. So you're gonna be really good at using this. And then after that, as you learn that, I'm gonna show you some projects that once you learn how to do use a wire cutter, you can create. And, and at the end of this two hour experience, these young girls who are intimidated and have dealt with, I'm a former middle school math teacher, all the negative messages mm-hmm. of how they don't see themselves as successful scientists or mathematicians. is mm-hmm. able to condense that two hour experience into a confidence building exercise, and they build a circuit that comes to life and makes noise and lights up and is based on their design, might even be uh, in, embedded in a piece of fashion that they design themselves. Mm-hmm. And those young women walk out more confident mm-hmm. and more capable as engineers and you know it does take some skill for an entrepreneur to hold fast on the big vision of what electric girls might be and put energy into that 2 hour version of it you know and 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 that to me is what we that is our craft mm-hmm. our craft is engaging people who have huge big promising ideas of what school could look like
1: mm-hmm.
0: And then we teach them and we walk with them in this very uncomfortable journey to get to that pop-up meal version and to have the same level of hope and optimism, but the discipline to create that tiny little version and start showing your customers that experience and then build from there back to the vision.
1: Of course, the smallest, simplest thing you can do. But I'm still curious to know about failures.
0: Failure, sure. Or, Over. or
1: you know, what, what you learned, was there a significant pivot that you've had along the way where you tried something and you learned from your customers that this was totally wrong, but they helped you see a, a better way or a different way forward?
0: I think, you know, if I just speak for myself as a, as, an, as a founder of 4.0, I think that first year fellowship was a failure because what we did is we said, we'll give you a full year salary. And we'll say, you've got a whole year to think about what your school might be. And you know what happens? Many of those schools, when they first were created, were not very different. They were evolutionary uh, or iterative at best, Mm -hmm. away from the best practices we already had. And so, you know, that tension between comfort and discomfort and the raw fear of not knowing um, whether this thing's going to work um, I, I think ever since then we have continued to um, invest less and less where to start.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so I think that was a failure because I didn't understand that. Yeah. I thought that people needed a comfortable year to explore mm-hmm. and what they really needed was the push to yeah. ship something in two weeks. Yeah. Um, and the support to know that even if that two-week version stinks, mm-hmm. you haven't jeopardized the millions of dollars that you're going to need from the local and state government. Yep. You haven't jeopardized the academic careers of the kids who will enroll in the school that's in your head. Yep. And in fact, as you just said, you've asked those parents and students to come into the process with you mm-hmm. and create it together. Yeah. And that is a, a groundbreaking visual in a world where we just don't do that. We do not give parents and students the respect they deserve as co-creators. And that was a massive failure on my part because I thought that I knew what great schools would look like. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'll just give you a year to hang out with me and go spend time in schools that are awesome. And then you too will build great schools. In fact, none of that first version of our program had anything to do with listening to students and families and saying, what would you want in a school?
1: Yeah. But you had to go through it to be able Mm -hmm. to get that learning and that, and it's such a powerful story when you tell it as well too, Matt. Let's talk. I'd love to talk a little bit about the program that itself that you have with your fellowships. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you can tell and explain again to our listeners the difference between the tiny fellowship, the essentials fellowship Mm -hmm. and, and how you find participants.
0: Yeah. It's a fascinating story. And, you know, Of, of where that is headed, um, specifically how we find people. And the, again, I'll stick with my metaphor. The, the, the Essentials Fellowship is the, the, the first step for most of the folks that we invest in. And that is a um, 10 to 12 week fellowship. Mm-hmm. And that starts with the three day camp here in New Orleans, a cohort of 20 to 25 people from around the US Mm -hmm. All of whom have pitched us on something that might change school or learning or the experience that children and families in their hometown have access to today. Mm -hmm. So they share with us their vision of a new school or a new after school program or a new attempt to make the experience in a school more diverse or more equitable or more inclusive or an experience for families, for parents, to help them better advocate for themselves, for example. Mm-hmm. And so we listen to those, we read those ideas. Even if you aren't accepted into Essentials, we give you feedback on that idea so that you can keep working on it and we invite you to come back. But if you're invited into that fellowship, you show up for that weekend and then you get paired up with a coach mm-hmm. who has gone through the program within a year. Yeah. and. A year, two years ago, most of our staff did the coaching. Now all alumni do. So you come together in a community mm-hmm. of 20 to 25 peers mm-hmm. doing all different kinds of things. We've tried it where it was, let's bring all the school builder together. or Let's bring all the technology focused ventures together. It turns out that heterogeneity is much more powerful mm-hmm. than homogeneity. So um, it's less competitive. People are all into learning from one another and stealing. So that weekend... In that weekend, you refine what it is, you go through these lean techniques of what is the customer needs. So you're just trying to achieve a concept of what the customer and product fit is. And then you walk out of that weekend, okay, I know in the next two to six weeks, we'll give you nine, but we want you to do it as quick as you can, what a half day to a day, or maybe a two day experience for your customers would be Mm -hmm. $300 check, Coaching up to two or three thousand dollars mm-hmm. on the phone. And if, if there's a coach in your hometown, someone who will be there with you.
1: Better still, sure.
0: Um, and then you set you tell us how it went, and we can we can invest two more times in that pop-up. And so that's that's the essential fellowship. And it's just just get that pop-up meal version out into the world. The tiny fellowship is the same construct, the same elements again, begins with community lots of coaching but you have 6 months to run a more food truck scale version $5,000 of cash mm-hmm. up to $10,000 of coaching and 6 months to get into a repeated interaction with your customers just like with a food truck mm-hmm. you know you start to get fans and you start to get into a deeper relationship with your customers so that they can give you more and more feedback about what that that potential solution might be like
1: is there a different criteria for entry into the tiny Fellowship, in other words, should they have been running a taco stand on the side of the road or it's, something like that before they get to the food truck stage? It's it?
0: interesting. <laughs> yeah. More and more, Marilyn, they're starting to blur the lines between those those two programs are blurring a little bit. We just have uh, forty teams here this weekend for the tiny camp, wow. and. Um, I close to half of those groups have had gone through essentials. Mm-hmm. So I think more and more we know that even in the time between we reading your idea and you showing up for camp, things can change. And so I think we're trying to be much more flexible. Yeah. And say, if you have if if you can do those pop-up meals between now and camp, maybe the maybe we'll be ready to do that food truck scale by the time you get here. So mm-hmm. I think the short answer to that is. Um, It it varies quite a bit, and the more people get to know us, the more they can do this stuff on their own, and when they do get to camp, they're further along. Yeah.
1: Now, I know you're based in New Orleans, and I'm wondering if just how have you seen your efforts change the landscape of learning in your home city?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a humbling um, topic because when I moved here, I moved here as a very self-righteous and very self-assured uh, expert who had a lot of experience in charter schools as, a, as, as an area of expertise. And I came to town with a ludicrous amount of hubris and certainty that I knew what this city and what the families of this city would need as solutions. And I look back on that and it's embarrassing to realize you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mystical that was. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: You know, and I think, so what we are trying to do, what I am trying to do is to acknowledge that, that that is a structural flaw in the way power is distributed and the way privilege is exercised. And that, you know, as a community, what we are trying to do, and we're seeing this emerge, yeah. Yeah. is that the nature of, of what we call school reform, is starting to become a more interactive communal experience. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that there isn't a decade, 12 years of very deep wounds that still need to heal in this city. Of course, of course. It was an incredibly violent storm and the human engagement after it were even more violent. Mm -hmm. And so we are aware of that and we are trying to become a community of people who lives out a commitment to saying, we will no longer test on communities, we will test beside and with them. And that's starting to emerge, Marion. We're starting to see organizations, Elected Girls is a good example uh, um, of, of an organization that grew up as a response to actual teen women's desires and fears and explanations of what that lived experience was, yeah. and we're responding. Floors responding to them mm-hmm. in a way that I did not when I got here and started putting schools up. And and to me, that's that's exciting. Um, it's something that I certainly could never do on my own. But uh, that's what gives me hope: is that you know New Orleans has the chance to show the country what a human-centric approach mm-hmm. to improving something as sacred as this public good of of schooling could look like. It is very, very early days in that chapter, but we're starting to write it and there are a lot of people with a pen contributing. And to me that's the most profound and interesting contribution that that I hope we can
1: make. Oh, and, and a fantastic metric. For success too, you know, uh, I think you're probably being a little hard on yourself. And I also know that a lot of innovators or people who would call themselves entrepreneurs start from a position of everybody should have this Everybody will want this. That that whether it's uh, intentional or not, that arrogance of knowing what's better for other people. And yeah. it's only when you start focusing on really what 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 are the real problems we're trying to solve for that I think people start to shave off some of that uh, assumption. Those assumptions that make them feel like they know the only way forward. So mm-hmm. you know yeah. that in itself is 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 a great lesson. I, I want to just change gears for a few minutes and ask yeah. you about funding for education. And I know that part of your model is to focus, if you like, on the, the promising versus the proven. Share a little bit about what you're thinking there.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll just draw another number line. Sure. Uh, I think if you looked at a number line of what the average investment might look like, let's say this is a billion, let's say this is a million, this is a thousand, and this is just one dollar. Mm-hmm. What you see when you talk to philanthropy, uh, many of the conversations I have with philanthropy have phrases like this. Well, we scale what works. Uh, if you look at federal intervention in K-12 schooling, you see things like the Race to the Top Initiative or I3. Um, these are all basically you know, programs that are based on the idea that we have found something that has proven to work mm-hmm. and we will now scale uh, what's proven. Mm-hmm. And again, if we go back to that Hollywood graph I just erased, there's a, there's a lot of assumptions there that scaling something to serve all children um, yeah. works, that there's such a thing as working for all children. I have three children and not a lot works for all three of them. Um, I think there's also, so I think that this is a flawed mindset. Again, good intentions, no doubt. If I'm a philanthropist, I want to serve as many children as possible. So I get where the good intentions come from, but it is disturbing to me that if we speak about personalization and humanity and individualization and the struggle that we have had in this particular country to even recognize the basic humanity of everyone in the country, that we should not interrogate that construct at a deeper level. The last thing I'll add in sort of a analysis of this bias towards the right of this Mm -hmm. chart Mm -hmm. is that there are more than 13,000 school districts in this country and to. To presume that you can just scale something across that type of disaggregated landscape is ignorant at best and inhumane at worst because that's just impossible. Mm-hmm. And, and I think just acknowledging that of the public goods that we have as a, as a, as a democracy and a uh, representative democracy, federalism has allowed for school to be a hyper-local public institution. And so, these constructs of scale it everywhere are inherently going to be more difficult. And so, what we have found is, is that it is very difficult to get funding, whether it is private capital, public capital, or philanthropy, to embrace the value of what promising might look like. Mm-hmm. And again, I give. I have to give a lot of credit to, to y'all, to the folks who have made these concepts accessible to people like me. This is what we are trying to do. And, and the reason why, what, what I like about saying, you know, on average, the, the, you know what we invest in is $300 is that first check you get for an essential pop-up, but you're getting $5,000 roughly in that whole investment. And then the Tiny fellowship roughly a $25,000 investment. And so, so what you see here is, if if you know, if I could just bottle what it feels like to be at a camp here, it's like this is hope. You have a room full of twenty five teams from all over the country, believing that they can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And what's tragic about the way we have funded reform is that you can't get help with that until you have quote proven it. Mm-hmm. The amount of times I've heard philanthropy say. Come back to me in a few years once you've worked out the kinks. Mm-hmm. That's a fine position to say if you are just the person who wants to t- to make those big checks. Yeah. But I would beg of you if that's your attitude. Mm-hmm. Are you at least talking to? Do you know of? Do you can you sleep well at night? There's somebody out there where they can go to work the kinks out.
1: Yeah. Well, and the kink is that one perfect solution that's going to suit every kid Correct. in sixth grade across the United States or
0: whatever. So so the so the end game of the Hollywood blockbuster yeah. mm-hmm. for all kids is a fallacy, number one. And two, the benefits of scale come with a profound ignorance about the diseconomies of scale. And it's and and this is something that, that I think what I I rolled up into New Orleans 12 years ago believing that, Mm -hmm. that I knew what the best models were. And all you had to do was just listen to me and deploy them. When in fact, the diversity of the co-creation, the necessity to listen to and truly care about what would make any neighborhood or any street in this town need a special type of school based on who they are and how they work in this city, in this world, Shame on me for presuming that institutional scale that the Hollywood blockbuster was the movie they needed to see. And so, you know, I think for me, I'm walking through this too because I've spent most of my career thinking that, yeah, man, the success is over there. Anything that gets to be validated as scalable, Mm -hmm. uh, nothing wrong with that. There are some things that are very powerful and could be shared. But when we're talking about individual children, in individual communities, more often than not, human-centric design is where we should start, not institutional bigness as where we should start.
1: Well, you know, Matt, I was gonna ask you what's been your big surprise so far, but it sounds like you just described it. So if you were going to start 4.0 schools all over again, what would you do differently?
0: Well, it goes back to what you asked about recruiting, and, and, and I'll tell you what I'm most interested in about the next few years. Um, th- my my um, co-partner uh, and our chief operating officer is a two-time alum of 4.0. His name is Hassan Hassan, mm-hmm. and Hassan believes that our alumni are better coaches than our staff, mm-hmm. and so over the last year, Hassan has redeployed our entire coaching spectrum to be delivered by alums to fellows. And so that's probably three or four staff that we don't need to hire. Instead, we hire 40 of our alums. Mm-hmm. And so if we look out into the future for 4.0, what we see is 20% of our budget is now being spent through those alumni in their relationship with fellows. And, and as Hassan and I think about the next few years, we say, could that be, what's the next 20% of the business that mm-hmm. we could say to our alumni, you will be better at it than we. And, and so recruiting is on that list. So about 20 to 30% of our recruiting today is being done by alumni mm-hmm. in a year. My hope is that will be hundred percent. And so even in our own relationship with this institution, it's a tiny little institution. Mm-hmm. We are asking the question, how could we disassemble it? and reposition those assets in the hands of our alumni who are one order of magnitude closer, they're a degree of separation closer to our clients, to our fellows, to the students and families they serve, how do we continue to make 4.0 less a function of the people who are full-time here and more a function of the people we serve? And to me, that if I could start there seven years ago and and see what we do now, I'd do it. Um, But as you said, the stumbly way from where we started to where we are is the path we've tried. And so
1: yeah, the journey. Yeah. that's
0: where we're headed next.
1: Sure. Gosh, Matt, your passion is just so contagious. So maybe for my last question, let me just ask you if we have people listening and we have more than 25,000 people that pay attention to these webcasts. If we have potential educators, parents, kids, whatever, that are interested in finding out more about this or applying for a fellowship, what would you like them to know?
0: Well, first of all, you know, if there's anything that 4.0 surprises, every time I walk into a camp or I go visit a pilot, this is a place where you can start telling your story. Mm-hmm. And I've thought about that as like, you know, if we had to change the name of 4.0, sometimes it's hard to type in the website. So the website is 4P <laughs> as in Paul, T as in Tom, zero dot org. So, you know, that's the website. And, and uh, there's some amazing resources there, stories of great pilots, how to apply to the program. But sometimes I'm like, that's a really hard website to remember. If I was <laughs> renaming it, I would, I, Hassan and I were talking about this. So I was like, we should call it chapter one. Like, This is the place where you can start writing your story about the future of school. And, and, and I believe that. And every time we have more than two people in the room, it becomes that. It becomes a network of people telling stories about what school could be. And in these pilots, what it is literally becoming, hour by hour, and and that to me is, my inner teacher who often gets discouraged and thinks about how lonely this work can be at times, that is powerful, powerful medicine, and a huge encouragement that this is a community where you can participate in a hopeful and rigorous approach to writing some new stories and, and the future of school being brighter than the present and more hopeful than the past.
1: Wow, what a what a fantastic opportunity and I I so hope that some of our listeners will take advantage of that and will reach out to you through 4.0.org. Nate. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for your time today. I am very grateful and I'm sure our listeners will be as well.
0: Grateful to get an opportunity to talk with your community and grateful for what we've learned from your community. Um, It's a powerful set of constructs and a powerful community and and a very, very uh, compelling and humanizing approach to making change in the world. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. All right.